I'm going to start out with a joke. I'm going to try this. I'm not very funny. Have you all noticed I'm working on being more funny and entertaining? <laughs> That's a good way to start a joke, isn't it? <laughs> so a pastor and an Uber driver die and go to heaven, and they're standing at the pearly gates, and St. Peter is welcoming them, and he says, okay, let's go see the places Jesus prepared for you. And so um, first they go to the Uber driver's place, and it's this beautiful mansion. It's incredible. He's got new nice cars. There's a nice pool. It's just everything you could imagine. And then so they're celebrating. He's like, I'm so thankful. So then they go, let's go see the pastor's place. And they get there, and it's an apartment, a studio apartment with bunk beds in it and a desk. And the pastor's just like, what? Like, I think something is mixed up here, you know. I've spent a lot of time going to church, a lot of time studying and praying, and I've been preaching God's word every Sunday. And Peter looks at him, and he says, I know. He said, but when you preach, uh, people sleep. And um, when, the, when the Uber driver drives, people pray. <laughs> so my goal for the next, I know. <laughs> I'm really praying that I don't put you to sleep. I'm also praying that I don't scare you so much you need to pray. But I do pray that at the end of all this, you're praying. So we've been teaching the Freedom Seminar the last few weeks, Sharon Safing, Mike Bueller, and I. And uh, Sharon was saying something in one of our sessions that just really popped out at me. And we've talked about it lots before. But how with Jesus and how with our faith journey, there are three types of encounters we have with God. We have truth encounters, we have power encounters, and we have um, love encounters. And each of us, if we look back at our walk with the Lord, we can see different times when we've had different types of encounter, truth, power, and love. And some of us come for different reasons in those three ways. And I wouldn't say that one is not the other. Like if you have a love encounter with God, you have a power encounter. And if you have a truth encounter, it's a love encounter. And if you have a power encounter, you get truth. So I'm not saying that one is more important than the other or even hardly distinguishable. But for the next four weeks, we're going to look, we're going to um, look at these. And today we're going to talk about a power, the power of salvation. And then next week, Mike Bueller is going to share his testimony and about God's power in his life and God's truth and love in his life. The following week, we'll be talking about truth at the cross. And then, in the, and then the third week that I'm speaking, it'll be about love at the cross. So we're doing this a little different than other churches that might lead up to the cross. But for the next uh, four weeks with Mike, also, we're going to talk about the power of the cross. So... I want to welcome you, Holy Spirit. You are here. You are in our midst. You are dwelling inside of us. And I just thank you for what you're doing in our midst. But sometimes to have a truth encounter and to have a love encounter, we need a power encounter. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, that right now you would be speaking to each one of us in your power, that your power would break down any barriers from us from seeing you high and lifted up and resurrected in Jesus' name. So I'm taking a note from Kay and Tom as well. 
and I'm gonna tell the resurrection story, the cross story and the resurrection story. One of the things I've realized is I haven't preached a lot about the resurrection story because it's so long, it's so big. And, and just reading the chapters of the Bible, they are long, 45 verses long. And so I'm like, I want you to get the scripture and the story of the cross and resurrection, but I don't wanna to read to you for hours and put you to sleep. <laughs> so I'm gonna tell the story the best I can, taking pieces from all four gospels. So um, I wanna start with the journey to Jerusalem to that, those Passover celebrations. Jesus and his disciples are on their way for the Passover festivities. And I want you to imagine, I want you to find yourself in the home of his longtime friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They're staying in Bethany. And we got the impression, Aaron spoke about this last week, that they would travel back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem throughout that week. And so it's like Bethany was kind of like home base. And so home base, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. The disciples are all there. And that night, Mary, who always seems to have this way of touching Jesus' heart, doesn't she? And really abiding with him and sitting with him. That Mary, she does something so unusual. She takes a bunch of costly, very expensive fragrant oil that is meant for burial. It's meant for a body that is dead and decomposing. She takes this oil and she goes and she goes to Jesus's feet and she pours it all out on his feet. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. I mean, what an intimate, unusual act. And she's wiping his feet. And the fragrance fills the room. I wished I'd, I'd got some spikenard fragrance to fill this room. But I just want you to imagine a beautiful smell, a beautiful fragrance filling this room, wafting through the air, and this tenderness. And in that moment, moment Judas, lovely Judas, he criticizes her and critiques her. But Jesus says, leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. She's kept it for the day of his burial. How, how, how would she have known to keep it? Maybe she was listening to Jesus all those times he had said, hey, um, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Maybe she was listening when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Maybe she was listening when he talked about being handed over to people who were going to beat him and persecute him. Maybe she was listening when he said, this temple's going to be destroyed. Maybe she knew something was up. And I love that about Mary because I like to think that I know Jesus that well. I like to think that I get to minister to Jesus and his needs and his concerns. Maybe Jesus was saying, Mary gets me and she's taking care of me. The fragrance of that oil would be on Jesus and Mary for the rest of the week. It would be in that home. That was a lot of expensive fragrant oil in her hair, on their skin, probably on Jesus's sandals. 
It's almost as if life as they all knew it started dying right then. And she's already putting fragrant oil over that death process. That fragrance would be a reminder that this week was critical, sacred, precious. Every interaction you had with Jesus could be your last. But maybe some of us get it, some of us don't. All we know is there's a weightiness about what's happening. We travel back and forth into Jerusalem. When we're outside with the crowds, we probably smelled all sorts of other gunk. But when we would get back home at night, we might smell that oil. And it would soothe the stench of death. The next week, we experience crowds, the triumphal entry, conflicts with religious leaders, comings and goings. We would also experience intimate, tender, even imploring conversations with Jesus, where Jesus would, would try and prepare us for what is about to happen. And he would say things like, I will not leave you orphaned. I'm coming back. In just a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you're going to see me because I am alive and you're about to come alive. You're about to come alive. What does this mean? It's a week of lots of prayer. Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for us today, his future disciples. He prays for himself. It's a weighty endeavor he's about to embark on, and he needs vision for the task before him. At the Last Supper, Judas betrays Jesus. Later that evening in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is arrested and taken to trial first before religious leaders, and then all his disciples flee. Peter denies Jesus. These are his closest friends, us. Imagine us. How, how I could have denied Jesus. Easily, I could have fled. Jesus stands trial before the Roman leaders. And he's before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. What kind of kingdom is this? What kind of way is this? Next, we watch as the crowd calls for the release of the criminal Barabbas rather than Jesus. Roman guards later on, they dress Jesus with a crown of thorns and a purple robe. He's scourged, he's beaten, he's mocked, he's condemned to be crucified. Then they take Jesus and he goes out bearing his own cross to the place the place of the skull called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, a nail in his hands, nails in his feet, between two other criminals on each side, Jesus between them. Maybe we're standing by, maybe we hear about this later, but Mark says there were many women there and John the beloved. Mary, his mother, his aunt, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Lots of Marys. <laughs> mm. 
But as they're standing there and as they're watching, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And standing or laying or hung there on that cross, he releases forgiveness. That's what he says. That's what he declares. Forgiveness. Six hours into this ordeal, there's a strange and foreboding darkness that starts to cover the earth. I remember that feeling when we had a tornado here in August. I don't know, 10, 15 years ago? I don't even know how long it was ago. 20? 20 years ago. I remember when the tornado was coming, and we don't have tornadoes here, and I was in the driveway of my parents' house in Murray, and I was looking at the sky, and I was like, what is this feeling? Like, what's happening to the atmosphere? And I just remember looking up saying, this, this feels strange. It was quiet. Imagine an eclipse and something like that where darkness just starts to cover the earth. At about the ninth hour, the giant veil taller than this ceiling in the temple, heavier than any thing you can imagine, it's torn from top to bottom. And Jesus cries out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing the very worst of hell. He's thirsty and they give him sour wine. And moments later, again, he cries out in a really loud voice, it is finished. And he bows his head breathes his last breath, and gives up his spirit. Jesus is dead. The quietness, the shock, the numbness, the finality of death is very real. Now there's a garden in the place where he's crucified and in the garden there's a new tomb which no one had ever been laid in. And so since the tomb is nearby, they laid Jesus there. Um, oh, I forgot his name, but Nicodemus was one of the ones who was there who did that with him. And I'm going to talk more about that later. But they lay him in the tomb and then later on, all the disciples, all the followers, we all hear that the Romans have come and they've placed a giant stone over the tomb. And there are guards to watch the tomb. And three days later, because Sabbath needs to pass before we can go out and do any work because we're resting on the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene and a bunch of other women go up to anoint him with more spikenard, more fragrant oil. They go on the first day of the week, the sun is shining and they go to the tomb and on their way they're saying, how are we gonna do this? What are we thinking? We're not gonna, who's gonna roll away the stone? Like, but they're just going through the motion, which is what we do, right? After death. But when they get there, they look up and they see that the stone has been rolled away. And they see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. 
And they're alarmed. They're like, what's happening? And then he says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. I love that extra attention to Peter. <laughs> if that was you. And he is going before you to Galilee, back to his own hometown. And there you will see him, just as he told you. We told you so. <laughs> we told you so. Hallelujah! <laughs> he is risen! All four Gospels tell this story. It's the heart of the good news of the Gospel. This is the story we tell. Jesus had told his disciples earlier, he said, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. See, he told them this so many times, so many different ways. And he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. The reality of this strange new kingdom was unfathomable, unbelievable. What kind of power is this? What is this power? There are two temptations when it comes to the resurrection story. First is to question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? I believe he did. <laughs> I absolutely believe he did, and I'm not going to cover that one today. <laughs> You can study it. You can research it. You can ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. You can talk to us about his resurrection life power in us, and we will tell you. But if you believe the first, the second temptation is to believe if anything has really changed because of it. Because of it. Has anything really changed? I'd like to suggest today that everything has changed because of the resurrection. Like Tom said earlier, the resurrection accomplished so many things. But today, I want to talk about one specifically, and it's the power of salvation. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation from what? Peter says about Jesus that there is no salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. Later on, Paul and Silas are stuck in a jail, and there's an earthquake, and the power of God opens up the jail, and the jailer comes, and he falls at Paul's feet and says, what must I do to be saved? Saved from what? We don't like to talk about sin and hell. I don't like to talk about sin and hell at all. And I think because as Christians, we've often weaponized the topic of hell and used it for coercive and manipulative reasons. I recognize that and that's, that grieves me and I'm sad about that. But we still got to talk about it because Jesus talked a lot about it. In fact, we've been doing this study on Jesus <laughs> We've been talking about the sayings of Jesus, and I've just kind of been avoiding all those passages. <laughs> like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't like that. 
But I read that Jesus actually talked a lot about the fire of hell, eternal fire and punishment more than any, all the other biblical authors put together. So there must be something about it that he's trying to get us to grasp. What is it? For example, in Matthew 5.22, when we give in to anger and judgment, Jesus says we're in danger of the fire of hell. In Mark 9.48, he warns us that if our hands or eyes sin, we should cut them off or gouge them out. Now we know Jesus doesn't want us to cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes. But he's using that to tell us how big a deal this is. It's that debilitating. It's that, it affects you that much. In that same passage in Mark 9, he says, Beware of hell is the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What are you saying, Jesus? The word Jesus, the word Jesus uses that we've translated hell is actually called Gehenna. And it was the landfill that everyone recognized. It was a landfill where garbage was dumped and burnt daily. It's a place where corpses that couldn't be buried properly were left to decompose. Imagine a landfill where garbage is burned and maggots are at the work of decomposition. Jesus is using strong language. Timothy Keller says, virtually all commentators and theologians believe that the biblical image of fire and outer darkness are metaphorical. But to say that the scriptural image of hellfire is not wholly literal is of no comfort whatsoever. The reality will be far worse than the image. What then are the fire and darkness symbols for? They are vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to isolation. Remember, darkness covered over the earth and fire to the disintegration of being separated from God. Away from the favor and face of God, we literally, horrifically, and endlessly fall apart. We have all experienced this falling apart. No one of us, not one of us is untouched by it. When we reject Jesus, which is entirely our choice to do, we don't have to follow Jesus. But when we do that, we turn away from the presence of God. But John says, or Jesus says, and John records this, that he didn't come to reject the world. I came to save the world. Jesus is always right here saying, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. I'm always with you. I'm always for you. But when we turn ourselves away from him, when we just say, we're the masters of our own fate, I'm the captain of my soul. When we turn away from Jesus, we endlessly and literally fall apart. We don't want to believe this because we can see the good in humanity. We can be and we are, we are generous, kind, funny, joyful, brilliant, resourceful, we're incredible. God made us incredible. And God's creation is good and beautiful. 
But if we're honest, and I think Jesus wants us to be honest, we are also greedy and violent, power-hungry, fearful, angry, racist, depressed, and lost. Just look at history. Look around you. We can see that we endlessly and predictably fall apart. Think about um, Achebe's, the Nigerian author's book, Things Fall Apart, about the colonization of Africa. Or think about Post Malone. Everybody is always looking for Post Malone where we live, because I guess he lives somewhere in Cottonwood Heights, supposedly, but he's always doing selfies with my kids' friends. What does he sing? He sings, I fall apart. We all know these different references, these different songs. If we're honest, we recognize this endlessly falling apart. Understanding the realities in, what we, in which we live shouldn't translate into simple acceptance that this is the way things should be. Faith is hoping for things that we don't see, believing for things we can't see. And Jesus invites us into wholeness. The word for peace is shalom, which means wholeness. Apart from Jesus, we fall apart endlessly. With Jesus, we become whole and at peace. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm alive and you're about to come alive. I love Psalm 16. Long before Jesus comes, we have this psalm that we can sing, and it has all these themes in it. It says, therefore, let's see, I'm going to wait till we can get it up there. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. That decay is there. You make known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. If you feel isolated from God, if you feel disintegrated or separated or not whole, you're invited to believe in Jesus and what Jesus did that day at the cross, the place of the skull. His work at the cross tore that temple veil in two so that there would be no ritual or religious prohibition from entering his presence. His blood was shed so that he'd be the final sacrifice and we would no longer need retribution or judgment or paybacks for our sin. Jesus, God's presence left Jesus, so Jesus was forsaken so that we could be invited to endless access to God's presence. That's eternity. Endless access to God's presence is eternity. It can start right here, right now. And when we turn to Jesus, the dark isolation, the disintegration and the stench of hell are left behind us. Hallelujah. And when Jesus cried out that it is finished, he removed 
every barrier to his presence. His work was indeed finished. Colossians 1.18 says, A message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God is at the cross. When Mary poured that fragrant burial oil on Jesus' feet, preparing him for his death, it probably felt really foolish. Us walking around with the fragrance of the Lord on us sometimes feels really foolish and strange. And yet, sacrifice, laying down our lives for others, like Jesus, brings the power of salvation. So, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is after Jesus is resurrected and he's going to see his disciples. The disciples are hiding out and Jesus comes in and what does he say? Peace, wholeness be with you. And when he said this, he showed them the wounds in his hands and on his side and they were glad when they saw the Lord. And then Jesus says to them again, peace, wholeness be with you. As the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That really struck me when I was reading it this week. I always think of the Great Commission as like Jesus's final words and it's our great mission. And it is, it's the Great Commission. But here in John, Jesus is sending them to walk in forgiveness. Here's what's so amazing. Jesus came to destroy the power of sin and hell at the cross. He released forgiveness from sin and the power of salvation. And he sends us to do the same, to go out there and walk in the power of the resurrection, to walk in forgiveness. To walk in resurrection power is to be a person of forgiveness. When we speak forgiveness, we remove barriers to the presence of God for others. When we release and preach and speak forgiveness, we open the doors for the power of salvation. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I just want to encourage you this week. There's an, there's an invitation to be alive. There's an invitation to come alive. There's an invitation to receive the fragrance of what Jesus did at the cross. So to close, I'd like to invite the worship team back up. And I'd like to ask you to sit for a minute and think about one thing. Tom put up 12 things. 
But think about, if you could describe in one word what the resurrection means to you, what would it be? And I want us to finish celebrating the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony by declaring that one thing. And so I would like to, I asked a couple people if you would come up already. I'd like to invite you to come up here. I'll turn this on and create a line up here. So come on up <laughs> um, when you're ready, when you're ready. And um, in one word, we're gonna describe what the resurrection means to you. And if you're online, if you could put it in the Facebook notes, Aaron will um, slip me those notes or on Zoom, on Zoom or on Facebook, I'll open up my phone and uh, we'll add your word in as well. So um, thank you. Okay, Tom, lead us away. Victory. Transformation. Unconditional love. Hope. Redeemed. So let's just sit for a minute. Spirit, we just pray that you would reveal the power of the cross. microphone open to anybody who wants to come up and share what it means to you but we'll sing for a bit and go from there
have new life and freedom from the past. Pure love. Power. Thank you, Jesus, for the power of redemption, of forgiveness, for salvation. Thank you so much. We praise you today, and we pray that you would um, empower us to walk in forgiveness and release that power so that we can have truth encounters and we can have love encounters. We can have new life. In the name of Jesus, amen.